Hello and welcome to the Fidelity Pulse Survey podcast. In this series, we gather up all the very latest observations made by our analysts, and 146 of them around the world responded this month, to find out how the COVID-19 crisis is affecting companies and industries across all regions and sectors. Last month, we explored the scale of the hits to earnings that analysts were expecting and the rising threat of a solvency squeeze. Joining me today to discuss how and why these forecasts might have changed are Global Head of Research for Fixed Income, Marty Dropkin, Director of Research for Equities, Fiona O'Neill, and the Editor of the survey, George Watson. Thank you all for joining me. Hello, Richard. Richard. Now, the message from last month's survey was that companies were waking up to the gravity of the situation. Almost across the board, analysts are expecting to see a cut to earnings in their companies. George, um, coming to you first of all, they still recognise that the situation is grave, but there are hints of a moderation in those views, aren't there? I think what we've seen this month is really a slightly more differentiated picture. Some of the surveys that we do, a lot of the responses point in one direction and they all corroborate with each other. And I think from this survey, you can really tell the, st- the picture out there is still looking quite bad. The workforces are going to shrink in the next six months. Earnings cuts are still just about where they were for the full year compared to last month. But really what we're seeing is there's a lot more dispersion between the sectors and some of the winners and losers are starting to emerge now. Well, Fiona, what about that um, dispersion then? What can you tell us about that? George mentions winners and losers. So one of the standout sectors from the survey um, in the sense of things look a little bit less bad than they did last month, according to our analysts, is the consumer discretionary space. And I think what's changed is that sentiment on that sector has improved Uh, Stores are beginning to reopen as certain countries and certain US states begin easing the lockdown. Aggregate spending seems to have bounced off the bottom, driven by both stimulus, but also primarily pent up demand. And the other thing that's happened is that the companies have started reporting first quarter earnings. And so they've been communicating with us, with the market. And what they have then been able to do is tell us what changes they are making to their business model to adapt to what is, at least for now, the new norm. And what's becoming clear is that there are going to be winners and losers within that space, depending upon who can uh, adapt uh, most. What's interesting, if I look at the fine detail of the survey, is that there is less concern about the short term than perhaps four weeks ago, driven mainly by this pent-up demand that is being released and and is seeing a surge short term uh, in terms of sales. Where the analysts still are grappling uh, more is with the medium-term outlook. How long does this pent-up demand last? And, you know, to what extent does the demand that has been delayed come through or has it been lost forever? Can you tell me a little bit more then about um, why some sectors are now expected to be performing better and others um, considerably worse than only a month ago? I think some sectors have been more resilient than perhaps we feared. And actually, the easing of lockdown restrictions has come through perhaps a little bit sooner in some jurisdictions than one might have thought. So if we take industrials, for example, you know, industrials is highly geared to China and China, at least for now, in the absence of a second peak, is showing signs of recovery. And that's going to have a positive impact for 
industrial companies, for example. You have automotive manufacturers who, with their Q1 results, have started articulating their plans to resume operations. These operations are going to be at lower utilisation rates than pre-crisis, but it is the early signs of things starting to, to come back. And at least we appear for now to be through the worst and things are no longer getting worse. So the analysts are able to, to get more of a, a scale of, um, of, of what this problem is. Um, what, what about, if I can move you on to consumers, because we've got consumer discretionary spending and consumer staples, um, and quite, quite a change in, in both of those two sectors. Why, why is that? So I think the immediate so-called winners... Uh, appeared to be the staples companies. You know, we heard even in the newspapers about the stockpiling that was going on at the supermarkets. Um, that predominantly happened through March in the Western world. April was a bit more mixed. And what the companies are now starting to say is that trends are normalising, albeit potentially at a slightly higher level than pre-COVID, but we're through that surge of demand. Retail that is discretionary is, is kind of the inverse with the immediate uh, shutdown of shops, the scaremongering that there was about taking deliveries and could you be infected by uh, receiving parcels. You know, there was a real downtick in demand for discretionary items. As we've started to ease restrictions and as uh, consumers have got more confident with measures that companies are putting in place in their warehouses, for example, with regard to deliveries, then you're starting to see that discretionary uh, purchase come back. And so you're, you're, you're switching from your consumer staples to your consumer discretionary companies. So is that increasing level of, of clarity of information that the analysts are getting from the managements of the companies that, um, that they follow, Marty, um, does that translate through into fixed income as well in terms of um, how the companies are positioned and therefore um, the, the picture that the analysts are, are, are painting for us? Yeah, Richard, I think it does. And it, and it links very much to what Fiona just highlighted, which is, you know, last, last month, we talked a lot about solvency and liquidity and, and what companies were looking for as far as the number of months that they had left of funding. I think now where we've gotten into a routine where central banks have provided that liquidity, companies are a little bit more confident to issue projections. Companies are a little bit more confident to talk about the future. They're a little bit more confident to talk about the post-lockdown scenarios. And so that's giving the analysts when they talk to companies a little bit more clarity into what to build into their models. So to a certain degree, things right now have settled. We've got the first aid that's come from authorities, fiscal and monetary. Um, managements have got a, um, a grip of, of the situation. George, let me come back to you, because we've started asking the analysts about leading indicators um, for their sectors. And there does seem to be a note of optimism uh, this month. And um, can you explain how far ahead we should be looking for that, um, for that optimism? Yes, yeah, certainly. We asked them each month whether leading indicators are positive, neutral or negative. And we've seen quite a large jump this month in analysts reporting that leading indicators are positive. And, and that's really across almost all sectors and regions. And if you take China, which is the big outlier, for example, which is the same as last month when about half of our China analysts said that leading indicators were positive in their sectors, that's now jumped to almost two thirds. The global aggregate is a little bit little bit shy of that, but it's jumped to about a quarter of all of our analysts saying leaning indicators are positive. And so there definitely is some optimism around, even while at the moment, clearly the situation is very challenging. 
on the sector front, the the outlier, and we've talked about it before, is is staples. Whereas last month it was the sector with the highest proportion of analysts saying leading indicators were positive, around half. And now that's dropped back to around a third. Whereas in all the other sectors, we've seen the number of analysts reporting leading indicators are positive has grown. Well, that begs the question, Fiona, why? Why um, an apparent return of of, of optimism, at least looking some distance in the future? Yeah, I think that comes back to the point I made earlier about companies have been reporting Q1 data. And also we've started to see April data being released as well. And the run rates that have been provided by a lot of companies seem to be pointing to the fact that April, at least for now, has been the trough. And that sequentially we are seeing improvements from that April trough. We're not back to the races, but incrementally things are getting better. Well, before we get too carried away with excitement, we should also look at the responses from analysts relating to um, employment um, or the lack of it, because that was that was the message coming through. George, more job cuts on the way was the, the message there. That's right. Overall, our analysts are expecting global workforces to shrink by about 7% in the next six months. There's a little bit of regional variation around that. So North America slightly worse at around 8%. And obviously that's been in the news quite a lot recently for the size of unemployment growth there. So I think there's more pain to come. So Marty, given the fact that, as, as George says, we, we, we've had enormous um, numbers of people already out of work uh, in the US, and, and that's despite um, government help, um, as I talked before about um, uh, monetary help as well. Why is it that our analysts expect even more job cuts to come in future, another 7%? This is really the bit that creates the most uncertainty for the analysts. And um, you know, I think as we look ahead, Richard, the numbers are very shocking when we've seen uh, you know, the latest print on U.S. unemployment rate was 14.7%, um, the highest on record. And the numbers keep getting worse. So the analysts are starting to think post-lockdown what the situation is going to look like by company and how they bake that into their numbers. Now, the other thing that jumps out at me from the employment data was the dispersion. And you could really see sector by sector where analysts were tighter in their forecasts and where they were wider. Now, that links to the need for company selection, stock selection, credit selection, and the investment process. But it also just highlights that the point that Fiona and George made earlier. There will be winners and losers here. It's becoming clear which sectors will have a little bit more stability, and it's becoming clear which sectors are going to have a little bit more volatility. I just want to pick up on that. I, I When we were talking about just consumer discretionary earlier on, I mentioned that our analysts were more optimistic um, on the short term as we come out of lockdown, uh, as restrictions uh, get eased in terms of the pent up demand. But I also referenced that many analysts have said it's still very difficult to predict the medium term. And it's, you know, you have to see the link there. If we are going to see further job cuts across a number of sectors and in many regions, you know, who is going to put the money in the pockets of the consumer to spend once we've been through this initial surge of of, uh, pent-up demand. What's going to then sustain that demand going forward? Can the can those people without a job continue to spend? 
Well, actually, the survey seemed to imply that um, it, it won't be there because all those job losses imply um, scarring for the broader economy is going to be long-lasting. We did put a question to the analysts about demand and whether they're predicting um, that it'll be delayed or lost forever. And most are now expecting permanent demand destruction, uh, George. So that's right. So in this month's survey, we've seen a sort of slight creep up in the amount of demand that our analysts expect to be lost rather than delayed as a result of COVID. And so in Europe, we're edging up to almost two thirds of demand is now going to be lost rather than delayed. And in North America, that's edged up to about half of all demand. Um, There's also quite a big jump in EMEA LATAM, where it's moved up to about 60% from about a third last month. So a slight, a slight worsening of the picture overall. Well, it suggests, for example, that the recovery won't be V-shaped. There's been an awful lot of discussion about that, uh, Marty, about whether it's going to be a V-shaped recovery, a U-shape, a Nike swoosh shape. Um, but that it, it doesn't uh, doesn't bode well. It highlights a lot of that, Richard, and it, and it also highlights the impact of a service economy. So if you look at some of the sectors where we are anticipating more lost demand this month than last month, IT jumps out, financials jumps out. These are sectors where... Perhaps if you don't buy something one month, it's it's just pure lost revenue. And the next month, even if you do buy it, it's not going to show up on the company's balance sheet. Um, other sectors, obviously, there might be more pent up demand. But that, that, I think, could be showing the shift to a service economy overall. And a worsening picture in um, EMEA and Latin America, Fiona. Yeah, I think a big driver there is, is Brazil. There is a high level of political noise uh, as the regional governors and the president take um, a bit of a different stance shall we say, in terms of how to deal with the COVID crisis. And what's clear is the story of reform that was previously there for Brazil is perhaps no longer there as a result of COVID. So things like pension reform, tax reform and employment growth. So then the question becomes, well, then where is the money going to come from to spur on the consumer? We've been talking so far about economies and business performance, but what about um, the impact that the crisis is having on the way business is done? For the first time this month, we asked the analysts to separate out how their companies are approaching each of the ESG principles, environmental, social and uh, governance considerations. And we got some interesting data back. George, you've been looking at this. So what what were the highlights there? What we found was that social really stood out. Um, over half of our analysts report that their companies will materially change their social issues approach as a result of COVID. If we look at uh, the scores on governance in Asia, um, that's starting to increase. And so I-, I think what you're seeing as a result of the crisis is a catalyzation of some of the effects that we expected to occur anyway, but are probably occurring more rapidly. So for instance, in China and Asia X Japan, you're seeing the analysts say that governance is going to be a much bigger impact in the way they assess companies. But let's talk then about the the, the standout, though, as George said, which was um, social. I mean, this looks like a, a dramatic change in focus um, amongst the company managements all of a sudden. Were you taken by surprise um, or is this actually something that's been bubbling under for a while? I wasn't surprised, but it is profound. This to me is this is the standout question for the month, which is seeing an affirmation of what we know has been lurking in the background, which is an increased focus on social dynamics for companies. And uh, the scores themselves show it, as George highlighted. We also, if you read the comments, 
uh, a lot of the analysts are, are highlighting things like worker safety. There was a very interesting comment from one of the IT analysts who highlighted companies providing zero financing to end customers looking to, to buy computer equipment. So we're, we're really seeing a shift in the way companies are starting to recognize their need to provide social good. And Fiona, a shift then perhaps away from the shareholder uh, primacy to stakeholders. So looking at um, every aspect that a, that a company might touch. Yes, indeed. And I think what companies are now going to have to demonstrate is the extent to which they have developed and take forward their social policies, with a focus being on their customers and on their employees, um, given the extent to which they have, in many instances, been bailed out. And I think also there's going to be a lasting um, impact in terms of companies' ability to recruit talent going forward based upon their diverging behaviours, their diverging uh, social policies. And I, and I think once we get through this crisis, people are going to care much more about the companies that they work for. Are these long-lasting um, uh, changes, though? I mean, Marty, I want to ask you this, because uh, you're saying it's a profound shift of focus onto the, uh, to the social elements. Um, do you think it'll survive as a theme once things return to whatever normal is? I do. I, I mean, look, it's difficult to say to what extent at this point and how much companies are going to shift. But I really do think this is going to be something that, that permanently changes with the relationship that companies have with their employees. We, we will almost undoubtedly see uh, people starting to work from home a little bit more post-lockdown. We will start to see supply chains being focused on even more than they are now. When you think about workplace environment, um, there could be some cost implications. The companies will need to provide better worker safety. Companies will need to provide better worker protection um, in many places. And, and those are the types of things that I think will be almost impossible to reverse. There may not be a step change overnight. I think we see the virus really being a catalyst for change here. And that sounds um, a much more, certainly a much broader way of looking at the world. Um, Fiona, do investors need to prepare for um, an impact on, on margins, on the, on, on the bottom line, essentially, uh, for companies, that there is a cost associated with taking care of all stake stakeholders and not just looking at profit? I think that's a good question for the long term and one that I'm not sure we have the answer to yet. But certainly for the short term, there is very clear that there are some companies that are massively behind the curve. And so to stay competitive within their own industry, to stay attractive for, the, for, for recruitment and retention of talent, and to stay attractive to shareholders, there are many, many companies across many sectors who have got a significant amount of investment to do right now. Any other comments that, um, that caught your eye as we went through the results of this month's survey? So I think we can probably talk about, whilst we might be through the nadir on sentiment, the outlook continues to remain challenging. Um, and, you know, there is the quote from one of the analysts that we are starting to move from a discussion of cash burn and survival during shutdown to understanding the trajectory of a recovery when things reopen. What is the breakdown utilisation rate that's needed uh, to protect margins? They're the kind of things that we need to be really focusing on now that we're through almost the initial panic. And George, last word to you. I think the really interesting thing about this survey is, and as we've moved to doing these surveys monthly, you can really see that when you're when you're moving up and when you're moving down, a lot of the answers corroborate each other and it's very easy to, to pick out a narrative. But when you're at the top and when you're at the bottom and things are, you know, that rate of change is starting to move, I think that's when you get 
the you know the really interesting survey results and a bit more bit more change a bit more dispersion and that that's certainly what what this survey feels like that perhaps you know somewhere at the bottom where again just to re-emphasize that you know things are still looking bad but the dispersion is starting to to really become a very interesting factor i think the other thing that stands out from this survey is the realisation that as we focus on the trajectory and what things are going to look like for the rest of 2020, it doesn't stop at the end of 2020. There has been and will continue to be so much demand destruction that I think there is a dawning realisation that there's going to be some level of demand destruction that persists into 2021. And therefore, we need to be thinking about top line and costs and therefore the impact on earnings beyond the end of 2020. So Fiona, you got the last word um, after all. Um, Thank you. That brings us to the end of this month's Pulse survey. I hope you've enjoyed listening. If you'd like to see the results in full or read more of our analysis, you can read it all online at fidelityinstitutional.com. Thank you to my guests, Fiona O'Neill, Marty Dropkin and George Watson. Thank you to all our analysts. And the producer was Seb Morton-Clark. But from all of us at Fidelity International, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.